for listening to WP Radio. I'm your host, Terry Doherty, and this is an OIAA podcast. On today's episode, we have Parker Thompson. He's a professional race car driver. He's going to be speaking to us uh, about distracted driving, his whole life in racing, both in go-karts and in professional car racing. And he is also an up-and-coming speaker at our claims conference that's going to be held on May 2nd and 3rd in Ottawa. All right. Well, uh, welcome, uh, Parker Thompson, to uh, WP Radio. How are you doing this evening? Not too bad. How about yourself, Terry? Good, good, good. Um, Parker, I uh, had you on the uh, show today because we want to talk about your upcoming speaking engagement with uh, the OIAA in May next year. And uh, before we do and we have you on, I wanted people to kind of get to know you and be able to look you up on the internet and stuff so they have a better understanding of who you are and what you're going to do and I just thought it'd be a lot of fun. Yeah, likewise. All right. Well, Parker, um, kind of give us your background. I know you've uh, you've had quite an interesting background about how you actually got to racing in the series you're in now. Um, so let's uh, rewind back to your early ages and uh, talk about your whole family and everything. So just kind of us, uh, give us an update on that. Yeah. Well, the uh, the elevator the elevator pitch all starts with my father. So uh, I probably would have never found racing if it wasn't for him. Uh, he raced uh, everything except four wheels, which is kind of funny. We always joke about it. Um, he raced bikes, and then later on in his career, uh, he moved to jet boats. Actually, in Alberta, it's quite a popular thing here uh, to race on the rivers. So he raced across North America. Uh, in 2003, he was actually world champion of his class. And right around that time, I was pretty young, uh, five and six years old, watching my dad race uh, jet boats and knew right away that I uh, wanted to be involved in in something loud and fast. So when I turned five, I actually got my first dirt bike, uh, but it was pretty early that mom said, no, I do not want my son on two wheels. Uh, She knew that dad buffed himself up enough that uh, she didn't want that for her son. So right away, we moved away from two wheels. uh, And for my eighth birthday, I got a go-kart. And ever since then, I kind of grew up at the track. It started out as a hobby between my father and I out of the, the back of the family half ton. And we kind of evolved it into uh, what it is now, which is a, a career. I love that story. I mean, <laughs> for me, it's and for the people that know me and listen to the show, they know that uh, my heart's with racing. It doesn't matter really what it is. But uh, I love those times that I have with uh, my son, Kieran. We, uh, as you know, we spent a lot of times traveling, not just North America, but actually the world racing. So I, I can relate. And I just love hearing the beginning of your career. It's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty cool how uh, there's a lot of symmetry between Kieran and I as I kind of get into my career. Um, from a pretty early age, I knew that this is something I wanted to do with my career, just like uh, Kieran did. And um, I made a decision pretty early uh, when I was 13 years old to uh, to move to Italy. I had an opportunity. I actually represented Canada on two different occasions to get into how I got the opportunity. Um, so I was a part of Team Canada uh, in 2012 and 2013. We went to uh, Dubai and Portugal. Uh, to represent Canada in the World Championships, and I was the first North American to ever finish uh, third in the world, and that's what granted me an opportunity the following year to uh, get get a contract with an Italian team, move to Italy by myself, uh, leaving friends, family, and loved ones, and uh, competing over there for a full year. So, so just uh, remind, I sorry, I don't, I don't mean to cut you off, but you, you, you did that at 13, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah you moved you, over there Christmas of 13 years old. Yeah, wow, that's uh, man. It it is the parallel is so ridiculous. Um, okay, so you move over to Italy and uh, 
to tell us how does it go? You're living with an Italian family, I remember, right? You. Uh... Yeah. Well, I mean, how it went <laughs> all sums up the plane ride over there. Um, my first three months were rough. There's, there's no denying that. I mean, um, to be honest, I'd, I'd flown alone in North America to go to North American races, but flying alone to go to Germany, that was my first stop. And then to uh, catch my connection to Italy, I got lost. I missed my flight, uh, the language barrier. No one really spoke English in Frankfurt. Um, it was a bit of a mess. That, that sums up my first three months. Um, I moved in with a billet family who was awesome, but when I moved in there, they spoke no English. Um, so that was really tough. I had to, to pick up Italian. And to be honest, Google Translate was probably the best thing that ever happened to me <laughs> at that time. Um, so use Google Translate for the first three or four months slowly started to pick up Italian. And I mean, even just looking back at how I managed school, um, I went from normal grade nine schoolwork to in two weeks with the, with the opportunity on the table, I had to drop out of regular school, move into online school. That was tough. Um, that's a whole nother challenge in itself. So doing online school over there by myself, it was a, a year of, of a huge learning and, and huge maturing. That's awesome. Uh, now you, you did online school here in North America, but remotely from Italy, correct? Yes. Yep, exactly. And uh, when you were doing that, when you weren't in school, kind of tell everybody what you did. Um, I'm sure uh, it's, you know, interesting as well, right? Yeah. Well, while I was over there, uh, I worked in the actual factory for the team that I raced for. So I worked with the, the mechanics putting together carts. Um, and kind of really learning, it's amazing. I, I know we've had this conversation, but to explain to people, even now where I'm at in my career, the closest I've ever been to Formula One has been racing carts in, on the European Tour. Like, it was crazy. The, the chassis manufacturers, um, I mean, they just dump thousands and thousands of dollars into their programs. I mean, we would go to the track, and I would have four different chassis for every track we went to four different chassis we didn't have four for the same year so every time we went to the track we were developing new chassis new materials new parts it was pretty unbelievable um so in that time i worked in the factory to learn what we were developing and how we were developing it um obviously i was trying to learn italian and pick it up on a whim because all the mechanics spoke italian and i <laughs> i didn't speak italian at that time so learning italian going to the gym over there um to be honest it was a it was a pretty interesting interesting time in my life um very isolated uh i didn't have a whole bunch of friends over there i was mainly just focused on racing and getting my schoolwork done now the billet family um what relation did they have to racing how did you how did you come to meet the billet family that's a, an interesting story so when i arrived originally i was supposed to live uh with a with all of the team members with on a flat in italy so all of my teammates were from all over the world, Russia, Germany, um, they were from everywhere. I was supposed to live with them, all my teammates, but they were considerably older than me. I was, when I moved over there, 13, um, and they were probably 16, 17, 18. So when I first arrived, the secretary for my race team um, at the office noticed how young I was and said that is just unacceptable for him <laughs> not to have any parents or, or guidance while he's over here. So they actually just took me in. So that was them that made the decision to... Uh... Yeah, pretty much. I mean, at the end of the day, I don't think my parents minded. I think that was a, a good a good plus. But in the contract, when I was going over there, I was supposed to live with all my teammates. So that was definitely something that changed uh, while I was over there. 
and to be honest, I think it was for the best. Um, if you're going to try and learn Italian, you need to be immersed in it. Um, and you know what? I, I love the culture that I picked up. You know, I, I tell the story. I'm an only child. I uh, grew up in Red Deer, Alberta. Um, and when you grow up in Red Deer, Alberta, it's a city of 90,000 people. It's not too crowded. Um, a lot of people have acreages, and there's a lot of open space. When you go to Italy, it is packed. Like, um, I tell the story. By no means does my family have a large home, but our two-door garage was larger than our, uh, our apartment that I stayed in with my billet family in Italy. So it really taught me a lot of things about, uh, about life, really. I look at uh, my, my two sisters and my brother. I had no siblings growing up an only child, so it was really interesting to see how a sibling dynamic works in a family. I think that was good for me to learn how to, uh, to share, per se. I mean, it, it goes in deeper than that, but just learning a lot of things about life that uh, I didn't have without siblings. And it's, uh, it's pretty cool. I, I still keep in touch with all my siblings and my family over there. Uh, they're still near and dear to my heart, so it was a pretty cool opportunity for myself. That's awesome. Now, how old were the kids that lived there? Were they around the same age, at least? So you had well, the youngest was three years older than me, and then they ranged to seven years older than me. So she was. Uh, my two sisters were twenty-one and nineteen at the time, and my brother, I believe, was sixteen or seventeen at the time. Wow, that's <laughs> that's still quite a big difference. It is, um, but it was cool to see how they accepted me. Um, I didn't expect that, to be honest, but they were such an accepting family, um, both my, my mother and my father over there did a great job, you know, um, to be honest, they, they parented me for a year of my life, and um, I'm, I'm thankful that my parents let me have that opportunity to go over there, it's tough when your child has to be parented by another group, um, but to say that we never even met them before I moved in with them, um, I couldn't have got luckier with the family I got situated with. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really cool. So uh, how'd you do when you were over in Italy? How did that all work out for you? Really well, actually. Um, so from the category I moved out of, which was called Rotax, which is a two-stroke 125C engine, 125cc engine, I moved into what was called KF, which was a two-stroke 125cc engine, but it was mapped completely different. Um, the carburetor was adjustable while you drive the cart. Um, everything was adjustable. Um, the brakes, I mean, it was amazing how much of a difference the carts in Europe competing for, for their world championship were compared to the Rotax carts that I was used to racing. Um, the tires were way stickier. Everything was different. I mean, to be honest, if it didn't look the same driving it, you wouldn't know you, wouldn't know you were driving the same, same go-kart. It was completely different how it handled. Um, so that was a big, big adopting curve for me. But the first race we went over there, I mean, the competition is, is extremely stiff. There's there's 120 to 140 uh, drivers show up for every category of every event. Um, so the first race, I finished third, which was, I think, blew a lot of people away. <laughs> it, um, it actually blew myself away. I qualified 58th and finished the race after all the heats and, and in the final finished the race third. Um, so that was one of my couple podiums that I had. I won one race qualified on pole a couple times um and that was you know what it doesn't sound amazing but for your first season in europe alone by yourself and learning how to race a completely different craft i mean how they race over there is completely different to how we race over here i'm sure kieran has a, a bit of an idea of that even with the dirt bikes um but i'd say with a couple podiums one win and a few poles that i had out of 
140 of the best uh, drivers in the world, that was a pretty successful run for me. Yeah, yeah, we uh, we experienced kind of the same thing. We got over there, and the tracks were muddy uh, indoors, which we'd never seen before, and they were just, uh, you know, it, it was like racing outdoors in an indoor venue. It was backwards and upside down. It was like something yeah, we were just not prepared for, and it wasn't something you could adjust to because that's not what we were used to riding. And, um, yeah, so I, I feel you. I mean, our I think his best finish was a fifth out of uh, 22 guys. So, yeah. Well, you know what? It just goes <coughs> to show you, it's funny how people think it's the same sport. You know, you look at, okay, he's racing dirt bikes in the U.S. versus racing dirt bikes in Europe. But you don't realize, well, number one, there's the outside pressures of, you know, moving in with a family. People are speaking different languages. There's different politics going on that you're not even aware of um, being from, you know, a foreign country. Um, and then just down to the racing. I mean, for me, it was a different engine, different tires, which I'm sure it was different tires he was racing on. Um, maybe not different engine and different bike, but how they set it up is going to be different. They have different mentalities. You've got different personalities. Like I couldn't stress enough how different it actually was. Yeah. It's, uh, but it's all makes you who you are at the end of the day. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so it was a pretty successful campaign for that one year over in Italy. Yeah, I would say so. And then uh, you come back, and what happens next? I come back. Um, I would say I took about a, nine months off to kind of figure out my next move of how I would make it into racing cars. And within that nine months, kind of chose my best path, which was um, to try and get a ride in the USF 2000 championship. Now, USF 2000 is owned by what's called the Mazda Road to Indy. The Mazda Road to Indy, is like the development ladder um, for IndyCar. So essentially, uh, out west, we have the WHL. Out east, you guys have the OHL or the CHL, correct? Yep. Okay. So this is like the Mazda Road to Indy is essentially the WHL or the CHL of hockey, to make, uh, to make it under <laughs> easy to understand for Canadians. Yeah, for the most so people, I yeah. Think, yeah, exactly. So I raced in USF 2000 for the previous, uh, the last three years starting in uh, 2016, 2015, excuse me, and all the way to 2017. Um, and then I got the opportunity to move up to Pro Mazda in 2018 with Exclusive Autosport, uh, finishing second last year in the championship. Missed out on, uh, on first place by a, a, few bad luck, uh, <laughs> a few bad luck situations. Toronto being I'm one of them? Kidding. Yeah, but that's how racing goes sometimes. It's a, it's a pretty unique sport that way. So talk about your uh, your years previous to the Mazda. You did well there, I understand, as well, right? Yeah. I mean, the last, uh, the first, so I've been racing cars for four years, essentially. Um, and in the last three years of my car racing career, I've been in the top three in the championship, every single championship I've uh, competed in. Um, I think my win percentage the last three years has been around 30%. Um, podiums and polls has been as high as 50% throughout the last three years. So it's, uh, it's definitely been a good last three years. So um, take me through where you go. How do you train? It's, uh, it's year-round, I'm assuming, right? You guys do some testing in the off-season. Um, yeah. So, so tell everybody about that because, I mean, 
It's funny when you talk to people and they see pro athletes, they think about just them right there in the moment. They don't think about all the hours and the time and everything that's really dedicated to the sport, the family, the sacrifice. I mean, there's so much that goes into getting to the level that you're at. It's, I mean, if you have never experienced it and you're, you know, your kid plays house league and I know that's fun and you do a bit of travel here and there, but I mean, we're talking hours and hours on the road, the traveling, the grueling, the sacrifices, giving up, you know, your school events and, you know, trips and dances and everything that, you know, your kid typically that, you know, the average kid goes through. Yeah. For the most part, you guys miss all this stuff. So, so let's talk about that. Like, I mean, you go from being a child at 13 to an adult at 14, right? Yeah. I think if we're going to talk about that, we'll talk about <coughs> what makes motorsports unique as a whole. Um, and a lot of things, and, and this is my friend group included, I have a few friends that play very high-level hockey. Um, one is close to being drafted probably to the, the NHL and, and rest are solidly in the WHL. Um, and the biggest difference I can see in sports between us isn't the training hours, it isn't the dedication, it's the sponsorship that I have to raise in order to fulfill my sport year in and year out. Um, so I would say, you know, driving the car, as bad as it sounds, is really the easy part. It's the fun part. Um, it's the part you have to be the best at, don't get me wrong, and there's tons of hours that go into training on a simulator, training at the tracks, testing, making sure you're sharp, and getting ready to be, you know, your your couple hours in the car on a weekend uh, at a race, but the time that uh, really takes up my schedule is sponsorship, sponsorship obligations, finding sponsors, keeping sponsors, pretty well anything related to <laughs> to finding money to go racing um, keeps me, I would say, sixty to seventy percent of my schedule keeps busy. That's that's uh, so much time dedicated to the driver that's trying to get into the car and that's where you need to spend most of your time I would assume is in the car as opposed to trying to find money to get back into the car yeah it's a it's a real catch-22 you've uh, you hit the nail on the head there it's something that I'm not gonna lie I've struggled with I've struggled with the last few years um, at the end of the day if you don't have money to go racing you <laughs> you can't go racing but if you're not focused at, at what you're actually trying to accomplish which is win championships um, they're not going to come. So it's a real toss-up. But um, the last few years, I think I've, I've gotten a lot better at managing not only my time, but where my time is most valuable. Um, you know, whether that's fulfilling sponsor obligations in the off-season so that uh, in the actual season, I'm not worried about sponsor obligations. But it's still, I mean, it's it's still a science that I'm learning to get down pat. So what's the uh, the coolest track you've ever been to? Favorite track? I'm quite biased if I have to if I have to be honest with you, Terry. Um, I'm only <laughs> a big fan of the tracks that <laughs> I succeed at on the calendar. Um, so looking back at my career, I'd say my most successful track that that I have is Barber Motorsports Park in Alabama. Um, one of the things I love about Barber Motorsports Park there's a ton of elevation and lots of blind corners. Um, so when we talk about blind corners in motorsport with uh, four wheels. A lot of the times, tracks with a lot of elevation won't have what we call brake markers, which are the boards on the side of the track that essentially define your braking. So they start out at 500, 400, 300, 200, 100 as they get into the corner, and that's the feet before the apex. At Barbara Motorsports Park, there is no markers. It's pretty awesome. It's all muscle memory. 
It's just what you can remember from lap to lap in order to uh, to nail down a breaking point, and and your breaking point sets sets yourself into the corner. Uh, so I'd say that's what I love the most about Barber Motorsports Park. That's awesome. So kind of uh, tell people about like your race day weekend. How does that all work out for you? I know you. Uh, when do you get to the track? What do you do? You guys do a track walk? Do you do you get to do uh, practice laps? Kind of tell us a little bit about all that. Yeah. So most races happen on the weekends. Um, so we'll every race event except the ovals. Uh, so we do ovals, we do street courses, and then we do purpose-built road courses. On the street courses and road courses, uh, we have a race on Saturday and a race on Sunday. So two races every weekend. On the ovals, we have one race uh, happening either Friday or Saturday. Um, so to get into that a little bit, for the street courses and road courses, uh, we'll probably arrive to the track on Tuesday. Um, you'll do a track walk. You'll do a full day of uh, looking over data of the previous year. So you'll work with your engineer to define brake markers, to define you know, your initial uh, car setup, to define some objectives you want to get done in practice. Then practice will take care of Thursday and Friday. Uh, you'll have a qualifying Saturday or maybe late Friday, uh, and then you'll race Saturday and Sunday. And uh, so it's a, it's almost like a full week. It's you literally get there on Tuesday, you finish up on Sunday, and then you travel again Monday? Yeah, and then, I mean, for the most part of the summer, we've got three races every every month. So all of a sudden, you're on the road for the full month. Uh, you're pretty well just a traveling circus going race to race. And very little downtime. And when did your series start? Uh, the series kicks off uh, March on spring break in the U.S., so around the 9th and 10th. It finishes... Uh, early september wow and then you've got testing for the following year and prep and negotiations with with new race teams and cars and exactly it really doesn't stop you know we um to be honest it's not like baseball or hockey where we have our spring training camps which are like defined we start working on our craft i mean we we never stop and i think that's one of the reasons reasons motorsport burns out a lot of athletes is that it's a around the clock around the calendar job there's no there's no defined off time and on time it's i mean really the month of december is when we don't really have anything going on but then you've got contract negotiations and and those can be just as mentally straining as (laughs) having to be in the car a couple times every month so it's uh it definitely doesn't stop and you've got to find time in there for the gym social life uh, yeah. and eating. Exactly. And I mean, gym and eating, to be honest, I'm just getting used to that being a part of life. That's That never stops. Um, and that's part of me, too. I know I know certain athletes that can take time off and then come back to it. Um, I feel like I'm a routinist. If I don't continue with my gym, I fall off. If I don't continue with my eating, I fall off. So to be honest, I just I stay in diet and, and I stay training around the year and, and that actually for my mental health and for my physical health I think is the best thing for me. It's kind of what I found works best for me. Um, so that's nice. I just keep doing that all the time, no matter what. Um, but the finding time for friends and finding time to be a twenty year old is something I uh, <laughs> I might have to work on. Yeah, and I didn't tell anybody when we first got on uh, the air. You're only twenty, Parker. You're uh, you're really a young guy in a in, in a sport that, you know, uh, takes you, uh, unlike uh, moto, I mean, your your sport and your career can last many more years. Yes, it can. Um, 
there's definitely a danger aspect to it. Um, sure. Put that to the back of your mind. You you look at Robert Wickens, who unfortunately suffered a, a really severe crash uh, this year at Pocono on one of the ovals, um, and it it left him paraplegic, which is which is tough. But if you look at the average of race car drivers on a whole, most of us have pretty long careers if we're, we're lucky enough to make it. I mean, it's it's a it's a funny saying, but we actually get more valuable as we get older. <laughs> so what I mean by that is. If you look at Penske or you look at Ganassi, which are two top teams in IndyCar, you know they they tend to hire the older, more veteran guys because they've had more experience. They're proven. You know they're not going to crash the car and, and spend a bunch of the team owner's money that doesn't have to be spent. And they're actually as, as older as we get, and the more experience we get, the better we are at setting up a race car. I mean, uh, there's that old saying, you know, you're not a master until you spend over ten thousand hours at your craft. Um, you know, if you look at myself, I, I haven't spent anywhere near 10,000 hours and I, I work at racing every single day. So yeah, I met, uh, I, yeah, like I met you out there at Shannonville a couple of weeks ago and you were working with two young kids that were from the Alberta or Saskatchewan area and they were, uh, they're looking to move up in the next couple of years from go-karts to the, uh, I think it was F2000s. I forget the, the actual terminology. Yeah. F sixteen hundreds. F 1600s There you go. So they were they were sixteen hundred cc cars, and that you know it was it was pretty interesting. They were trying to drive the go uh, their their race car like it was a go kart. I was watching them and uh, from a guy that just you know knows racing, not specifically uh, car racing, but it was funny to watch them try and figure out the car and how it would react. Yeah, it's it's very interesting to watch karting kids coming into cars. And, and I put myself, I remember back uh, when I moved from carts to cars, you know, one thing that I don't think is um, promoted enough in the racing community with four wheels is how different karting is compared to car racing. Um, you know, in karting, you never have to worry about weight transfer. There's You never really have to worry about shifting unless you're in shifter cart. There's there's so many differences between karting and uh, and car racing. You know, one of the things that you could take away from karting is is racecraft. That'll never change how you set up a pass and how you execute a pass. But um, really, there's there's a big learning curve, and that's why I, I find a, a lot of karting kids that were very successful in karting move to cars and really struggle. Um, and then you'll see it the other way, where some of the karting kids that were nowhere in karting can move to cars and pick it up quicker than than some of the all-stars so it's uh it definitely evens out the playing field when you move move to cars yeah yeah i uh i, I watched them um you know just over the eight hours i was there i actually stayed the entire day as you know and uh just because i f- i found it fascinating that the kid was that was struggling in the morning um by the time he figured out the car in the afternoon he was literally uh lapping the other guy uh, at times yeah. it was, it was unbelievable. And I, I, when I first got there, I thought there's no way this kid's going to succeed in this car and, you know, put four hours of seat time in there and a, a little bit of confidence after lunch. And this kid literally, as you know, was, uh, was heads and bounds above the other kid. Yeah. And then when we talk about, uh, halfway through the day, it starts raining and all of a sudden now they moved from, 
a cart to a car in the dry, and now they have to learn how to drive in the wet, which is, again, completely different. Um, it's It was a unique day. I'm glad you got to come out and see how raw that was. Yeah, no, no, it was amazing. You know, your uh, your current team owner actually uh, rented Shannonville. It was pretty cool. He had the whole track to ourselves, and we're up there in the observation or out in the out in that rental truck, which he used and abused. I gotta say, uh, it, it was uh, it was quite a great day, and I, I appreciate your time and letting us come out and watch uh, you uh, teach these kids a few things. It was pretty neat. Yeah, no problem at all. I, I appreciate. Uh you understanding the craft and, and wanting to dedicate your time to come out and watch. So let's talk about uh, your distracted driving program, which is something near and dear to you. So uh, tell everybody a little bit about, you know, uh, this, this thing that you're doing and that you spend a lot of your time. Yeah, for sure. So I uh, started a campaign called drive to stay alive. And if we're going to get into the, the entire story, we'll start from the very beginning. Perfect. Um, so when I was in grade 10, in high school here in, uh, in Red Deer, Alberta. Um, I didn't attend normal, regular high school, but I got to kind of highlight myself. And, and every couple months, I was allowed to go to high school if I'd like, the real high school, uh, the one that my online school was affiliated with. And I got to sit in on math classes or, or other classes I was struggling with. Um, I had a good group of friends when I was in grade 10, and one of our friends got involved in a very serious uh, distracted driving accident. And it was at that time um, that I went online and, and I wanted to book a distracted driving presentation to our high school. And I searched up distracted driving presentations, Alberta, nothing. Distracted driving presentations, Canada, nothing. And I thought, well, why is no one talking about texting and driving? It's, it's such a big issue. I can't believe no one is actually talking about it. A lot of campaigns now, if they're drinking and driving or, or drugs and driving, they'll highlight a little bit or dedicate a couple slides to texting and driving, but no one was talking just about texting and driving. Um, so I thought, well, why not me? Uh, so I came up with a, a kind of just a real basic PowerPoint presentation um, presented to a few local high schools here in Red Deer. And before I knew it, I, I got contacted by the Minister of Transportation for Alberta. And he took me on a, a 10 tour campaign across Alberta uh, talking to 10 different high schools uh, in Edmonton area. Um, and after that, I got picked up by a, a national company called Global Traffic Group to to sponsor the campaign nationally across Canada. Uh, so we've spoken in British Columbia, uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Ontario. Uh, we've spoken <laughs> all over the place. And four years later, here I am uh, speaking nationally. Uh, the last year we did it, which was 2016-2017, uh, was our last full year. Uh, we did over 100 events across Canada and the U.S. Uh, I've spoken over 100,000 students on the dangers of distracted driving, and uh, 2018 looks to be more or less the same. So when you say your friend was involved in a distracted, a distracted driving accident, was it she that was driving distracted, or was there somebody else? No, it was she that was driving distracted. Um, and essentially what happened is uh, she... Right about two kilometers away from, from where we live, um, this is a girl that was my neighbor. I grew up with her. Um, she missed a stop sign that led to a highway. Um, she rolled through the stop sign while she was texting, and unfortunately she got uh, hit by an oncoming vehicle. And uh, with that, um, what's really sad about it, and, and I highlight this in the presentation, is the victim who was 
another female traveling on the highway at uh, 100 kilometers per hour wasn't distracted. She was driving <laughs> perfectly, uh, perfectly able. And unfortunately, she hit the car that rolled into uh, into the highway, and she ended up in the hospital for over two weeks with a lot of a lot of serious injuries. Um, my friend actually walked away from it fairly unscathed. Um, she did go to the hospital, obviously, to get checked out, but nothing really major. Um, but huge wake-up call for our friend group and, and a huge wake-up call for me just to realize how serious it was. And I wanted to make sure that, you know, I, I didn't want my friend group to think that she just got lucky and that this would happen again. Um, she was incredibly lucky, don't get me wrong, but I didn't want luck to, to have anything to do with how serious this accident was. Um, she very easily could have been killed in it. Um, and I didn't want my friends to make the same mistake. Yeah. It. So again, the innocent victim comes out on the bottom end of it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's not to say that you're, you know, you're holding this above your friend's head or whatever. You just want everybody to be aware that, you know, how quickly things can change with distracted driving. 100%. I mean, if you, if you look at it, when we text on the highway, if you're going down the QE2 here in Alberta or the, the Trans-Canada Highway across Canada, if you're traveling at 100 kilometers per hour, you look down at your phone and read a text for five seconds, which is a short text. That's only a couple words. You've already traveled over a football field completely blind. Um, so it's, it's one of those deals where I, we don't realize how bad it is because it's so innocent to just look down and peek at our phone. You know, you don't have to go to a bar and drink and consume. You don't have to to consume any drugs and then make a decision to get in the car. It's your cell phone is there 24 seven when it buzzes or rings, you know, we're, we're so, we're so enamored by it. We want to look at our phone. We think it's innocent. And all of a sudden in five seconds, our life can, can change drastically. Yeah. And you know, coming from a guy that drives at 200 miles an hour, um, it's, it says something. Well, that's actually the, uh, I would say the, the big bang of our presentation, the, the main theme is that I feel 100% safer traveling at, you know, 320 kilometers per hour behind the wheel of my race car than I ever would here on the streets in Canada. Um, I go into the reasons, but to, to just quickly run through them, there's three main reasons to why I feel safer behind the wheel of my race car. First and foremost, my competitors have massive respect for one another. Uh, we know that we're one crash away from possibly not showing up to the next race or maybe not even showing up at home. So there's that respect factor that you just don't find when you're traveling in the streets trying to get from point A to point B. Uh, the second main reason, as complicated as racing may seem on television, it is pretty simple for us. We've got 16 tracks that we have to memorize like the back of our hand. That's our job. <laughs> it's what we get paid to do is make sure we know those 16 tracks in every corner. Uh, there's a green flag, which means go. There's a checkered flag, which means stop. It's pretty simple, not too many variables. But when you're traveling in the streets, you've got unique roadways, you've got traffic signs, street lights, all this stuff can catch you off at a moment's notice. Uh, so I stress to the students that I need to pay attention more behind the wheel of my street car rather than I do behind the wheel of the race car. And then the last point I make is that uh, teams in IndyCar and teams in Formula One, as you know, have spent millions and millions of dollars developing not only the fastest race cars that they can develop, uh, but also the most safe and the most durable. And there's a big difference between the safety of a race car and the safety of a street car. Uh, so I definitely stress that to the students as well through some facts and videos. Wow. Uh, yeah. That's awesome. And you, you also have your own simulator. I mean, uh, yes. 
Yeah, if you own Driving Simulator, which is pretty cool, it's a company that you're uh, you're affiliated with. So, um, does that get to come out on the show with you as well, or is that uh, or is that something that's going to be happening in the future? What's what's going on with your own simulator here? Is that part of the program? That's interesting you bring this up. So, unfortunately, and this is we're actually working out the details. I haven't been able to bring it to any events uh, so far on tour for the last four years, but. We're trying to change that in 2019. We're trying to, uh, we're getting a truck and trailer, hopefully, and hopefully um, we'll be able to bring that and, and show students. We'll get A, behind the wheel of a race car, and, and B, uh, we'll make them distracted and see how well they can do. So for 2019, that's one of our goals. Yeah, I I love that. I mean, you're a young guy. You have you have a passion project You when you, you know, you spend a lot of time just working on that, and I know it's very near and dear to your heart because I see it all over your social media that you uh, you're off doing stuff all the time for um, Drive to Stay Alive, and uh, and and I appreciate that because you know um, just being on the road, I I watch people, and I, I I'm a different driver than I was before I joined the insurance industry. Definitely. Um, not to say, you know, we don't all like to drive fast, but I, I definitely pay attention. I don't text and drive. Uh, I try and use all the automation within the car to, to protect myself. It's, um, you know, I spend a lot of time in the car. I spend hours and hours in the car, to be honest. Um, and I just find that, you know, people do not have the same courtesy. You're right. It's just, it's, it's different out there. Everybody's rushing to get to the next place. It is. You nailed it on the head. Um, and for those of you at home that, <laughs> that are thinking, oh, Terry, you're lying right now, I can testify that I have been in the car with Terry, and uh, he has, A, never been distracted while I've been in the car, which I appreciate uh, as a passenger, and B, he does a, a great job of using, like he said, the tools. So uh, I definitely appreciate, uh, appreciate seeing that. I know how busy you are. You're definitely uh, busier than the average teenager or even the average uh, adult here in Canada. So uh, if you can do it, I stress to other people that they can definitely make those life changes as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, Parker, tell us what's in store for 2019 for you. I know you're coming to speak with us in uh, May at the Claims Conference, and we're excited to have you and uh, and another uh, fellow athlete, uh, and we'll bring him up at another time. I don't want to steal the limelight from you, but um, tell us, other than uh, that, what's in store for you? Have you made any plans? Have you have you signed any contracts? Are you still in negotiations? How's, uh, how's your offseason coming? Well... It's been the best and the worst off-season that I think I've ever had. <laughs> Do tell. To get into that, um, I had a lot of contracts come up really early, and then a, a lot of plans fell apart. And unfortunately, as I talk to you today, I would let you know, you'd be the first to know, uh, nothing is signed for next year. Um, I have a couple options, whether it be in sports car or back in Pro Mazda next year. Unfortunately, Indy Lights is, uh, is a bit too far of a step for me to, uh, to make up in sponsorship dollars for this year. But you'll see me racing. By the time in May, I'll definitely be able to announce uh, where I'm at or what I'm doing. Um, but right now, just trying to, to finalize a few contracts and, and get a ride. Um, I'm sure I'll be racing next year. That's not a worry. But it's just trying to, uh, to pick the best deal to get you to where you want to be and what's your final goal just so everybody knows i know personally where you want to be but where what's your final goal where do you want to be you want to be in closed uh, wheel or open wheel what are you looking to do i think if i could look back on my career uh and hopefully win an indycar championship <clears throat> and, and maybe uh maybe 
be lucky enough to win the Indy 500. That would be a, a career goal for myself. So definitely on the open wheel side of things, um, I'm not opposed to sports cars, but you'll find that's something that a lot of IndyCar drivers can go do in the off season. Um, so the two schedules don't clash, sports car schedules here in the U.S. and IMSA, um, and then IndyCar schedules in the U.S. are actually separated from each other. So you'll find a lot of drivers actually do both. Um, not many sports car drivers race IndyCar, but a lot of IndyCar drivers go out and race sports car. So if I could, uh, if I could call my, myself an IndyCar racer that dabbled in sports car, that would be the goal. So for those people that really don't know what sports car racing is, that would be your NASCAR and your, your Porsche series and those kind of things, so you're closed inside? Yeah. You know what? The best, uh, the best way to explain sports cars, um, if you look up IMSA, which is International Motor Racing uh, Sports Association, um, they handle uh, all the sports car races in North America. So you look at Rolex, the 24-hour race in Daytona, uh, the 12 hours of Sebring, uh, Petit Le Mans, all those names. For the people at home, they've probably heard those names before. They don't really know what they are. Sports car racing is endurance racing. So you'll have one car, you'll have multiple drivers in that car that actually do driver cha- changes, and you'll race for 12, 24 hours, 6 hours uh, in a variance of different races. Um, IndyCar is the open wheel stuff in North America. And then when we talk about NASCAR, that's more stock car. Um, so that has its own kind of ladder system as well. That's kind of different. It's almost, um, it's almost like, let's say roller hockey and real hockey or ball hockey and, and hockey. It's, I mean, essentially the same sport, but it's played on two different surfaces. That would be a great way to de- define NASCAR versus IndyCar versus, uh, versus sports car. That that's actually a great analogy, to be totally honest, for for those people that understand uh, car racing and uh, and hockey together. That's a yeah. great that's a great analogy. Ice hockey, <laughs> roller hockey, and ball hockey for sure. It's the same arena, just different different things within it. Um, exactly. All right. Well, Parker, thank you very much for uh, being on the air with us today. I mean, I look forward to seeing you in May, and I'm sure everybody that. Uh, is listening to uh, WP Radio and WP Digital. We'll uh, we'll look you up. And what's your what's your um, social media handles where everybody can find you? Sure. So on uh, Instagram and Twitter, it's at Parker T Racing, and then on Facebook, it's just Parker Thompson Racing. So those are my three main ones. Uh, you can check out my website, uh, ParkerThompsonRacing.com. If you're interested in Drive to Stay Alive stuff, uh, all the handles are at Drive to Stay Alive for all social media. Drive-to-stay-alive.ca is our website, and uh, that's pretty well everywhere you can find me. Well, that's great, Parker. Again, I uh, appreciate your time. I know you're a busy guy here in the off-season training and, and working with your trainer and stuff and getting ready for the upcoming season, and we wish you all the best in the uh, beginning of the season right up until May, and I'm sure we'll uh, we'll get to hear all about it in May, and uh, we're, we're looking forward to you bringing a race car and uh, getting some photographs and some autographs and uh, everybody getting to hear your Drive to Stay Alive campaign, uh, distracted driving campaign uh topic uh, when we see you in may so i appreciate everything you're doing and uh keep the rubber side down <laughs> well thank you very much terry uh it was an absolute honor to be on your show this uh this evening uh for those of you uh listening in at home can't wait to speak to you all in may it's going to be awesome uh hopefully we've got the uh the race car on site and uh, we'll take them off the pictures so looking forward to may it's the highlight on my calendar excellent thanks again parker and uh We'll talk to you soon. Thanks.
All right. Thank you to everybody that was uh, on the podcast this year, everybody that's listened to the podcast. We appreciate your time and your effort. And uh, we look forward to another great season starting in January 2019. And we hope to see everybody at the Claims Conference on January 23rd. And please stop by. We're doing WP Live on the 23rd at the Claims Conference. So happy holidays, safe travels, and we'll see you soon.